God speaks to us today in, in John chapter 20. I will be reading from the NIV version, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this time, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary? She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni! Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. We had a great crowd out this morning for uh, sunrise service, and the uh, fellas who served and put together a really wonderful breakfast. Grateful for that, too. Well, it's Easter, and um, as we look into God's word this morning, we're going with 1 Corinthians 15, I call it the resurrection chapter. Uh, we're going to look at a fair portion of it, but there's even more we're not going to get to today. And I would put it to you that that would be a great way to spend a few minutes of your Easter would be to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we're going to read a significant portion, as I said today, in three separate readings. Right now, just verses 3 through 6. Give a listen to God's word. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, by the way, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, send out your light and love and let them lead us. In the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we'll begin with an Easter events recap. This is the gospel in a nutshell, this uh, excerpt from the first paragraph out of the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. I put it in bold, just the simple uh, sequence of events. He died, he was buried, he was raised. He truly died. There are some in another religion, there are some in various strands of Christendom, believe it or not, who want to explain away the death of Jesus. They want to say that somehow what happened to him in being pummeled, being bruised and beaten, being flayed half open, beaten within an inch of his life, and then being put on the cross with nails through his wrists and through his feet and all the suffering that he underwent, that he actually did not die on the cross, but he was unconscious. This is called the swoon theory, that he was merely unconscious, and then when he was put into this cave, and some, uh, not all of the ointments and spices, but some of them hastily applied to him, and his body wrapped with linen cloths, that somehow in the midst of all that, that the cool of the cave revived him. He woke up, was able to somehow unwrap himself, move the heavy uh, stone weighing tons out of the way and overpowered a Roman guard to uh, make his way to freedom. That's what some people would say. Some people in another religion, even strands of Christendom out there, that Jesus didn't truly die. But the Roman soldiers were executioners. They knew their craft. When the spear was thrust and jabbed into his side, what came out was an indicator that he had truly died. So Jesus, who was truly man and truly lived, truly died, and he was buried, and then he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And after that, the Bible records a dozen post-resurrection appearances of Christ with multiple eyewitnesses. Uh, Cephas, that's mentioned here, that's one of uh, Peter's nicknames. It's the Apostle Peter, means Rocky. Um, And and over 500 witnesses, most of whom remained alive at the time of the writing of the book of Corinthians. Can you imagine that? In a court of law, even today, parading dozens and dozens of people through who would give eyewitness testimony and all be giving the same account of what they had seen. That would be very significant and substantial. And yet sometimes I think for the world, I think for nominal Christians, I think even for those of us who would call ourselves believers and name the name of Christ and worship uh, and gather and meet publicly, regularly for worship. I think sometimes when 
these events are recounted, we think, so what? And that's the title of my message today, Easter. So what? You know, tell me something I don't already know. Uh, Some of y'all have heard this story rehearsed longer than I've been alive, and that's getting to be a good while. Uh, uh, Some folks, their attitude towards this familiar story, I think, is been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Along with Shania Twain, they're not impressed very much anymore. Uh, What's the big deal? So let's move on to some other things. According to the the National Retail Federation, Americans will spend almost $21 billion on Easter-related items this year. Uh, That's billion with a B, 21 billion. That's actually down a little from last year. Now that includes special foods for the holiday and, and other things. The average cost of an Easter basket $62. That's actually up 22% from last year, thanks to courtesy of inflation. So the average consumer will spend $170 on Easter. Now, some of you are going, oh, I'm below average. Oh, yeah, I'm above average. But, uh, uh, you know, we kind of move on to all the, the trimmings and trappings of the season. I think sometimes in celebration, but sometimes just looking for something else to do. Yeah, it's a nice story, but so what? More of the so what effect, I think, comes from the fact that when we read the Bible, we realize that other people were raised from the dead. Um, We're not going to look these stories up. It's a good way, again, for you to uh, spend part of your Easter. I've listed for you, but others were raised. Old and New Testament, that's O-T and N-T in your outline. Old Testament, the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Each raised people from the dead. You can read those accounts there. And in the New Testament, not only did the apostles do so, but Jesus himself did so on multiple occasions. And those are great stories to read. They are what we sometimes call miracles. Um, They are great signs that Jesus performed, authenticating his message, attesting to his identity as the Messiah of God. Um, and and yet when I think about maybe the most famous one of these, John chapter 11, Lazarus, it's a great story. And and afterwards, after he was raised from the dead, not everybody was happy. People wanted to kill Jesus. They actually wanted to kill Lazarus because he was evidence of who Jesus was. But then when I go on and think about Lazarus' life, What happened to him? He had to die again, all over. It kind of makes me feel sorry for Lazarus. And so these other instances in the Bible, you know, we think, well, Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, that's great. That's so nice. But other people rose from the dead. The prophets raised people. Jesus raised people. And for them, it was a temporary, as, as impressive as it was, as significant as it was, It was still a temporary resuscitation. What do I mean by that? Lazarus died again. How long did that temporary resuscitation last for him? A year? A decade? Half a century, maybe? That's pretty good. It's more than I can do, grant you. But he died again. Well, for a moment... For the sake of argument, 
let's go down the road saying that there is no resurrection at all. We're going to read the next paragraph. And as I read it, verses 12 through 19, which is published on the back of your listening guide there for you, if you have a pencil, you might circle the word if. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I wonder if any of you participate in that exercise. But if you are circling the English word if... You found seven of them. So what Paul is doing here is he's making an argument. He's saying, you know, let's consider for a second what the implications are if there is no resurrection. Now this book that we call Corinthians is written by Paul to the church at Corinth. And a visible church has people from all walks of life, people who are there regularly, people who are curiosity seekers, who come into the assembly because they want to find out what's going on. And some of them, as Paul testifies, did not actually believe in the resurrection. So for the sake of argument, what are the implications? They're listed there for you under point three. If there is no resurrection, Christ is not raised. Preaching and faith are in vain. We are liars. You're still in your sins There is no hope for the dead, and it's a pity. It's just all a big pity. We'll walk back through these, but briefly. Christ is not raised if there is no resurrection. It says it twice in the passage, verses 13 and 16. Preaching and faith, letter B, are in vain. uses that word vain twice. It means empty or worthless. If there is no resurrection... Your faith is as empty as one of those hollow chocolate bunnies in the Easter baskets, you know? Kind of you bite off the ears, and oh, there's nothing there. I thought it was going to be solid. <laughs> Preaching and faith are in vain. It's, it's futile. There's no point. It, it's an exercise in vanity. You're just full of hot air. Moreover, we are liars. Verse 15 Uh, It's translated kind of politely here, misrepresenting God. It means bearing false witness. It's used twice here in the original language. Bearing false witness to audiences, so to speak, your fellow man, and then ultimately against God. You're bearing false witness against God, which makes you a blasphemer. You're giving false testimony about God. If you say these things and they're not true, And worse, Jesus, who multiple times predicted his own resurrection from the dead, he too is a liar. A lot of people want to allow us to have a Jesus 
who is nice, a Jesus who is polite, uh, a Jesus who taught us to be kind to others, they'll allow that. But when we talk about him as the only Savior, as risen bodily from the dead, and the only hope for eternal life, it doesn't seem so polite and pleasant anymore. And you're still in your sins if there is no resurrection. There's no forgiveness. It's all an exercise in futility. There's no hope for the dead, even worse. They've they've perished. I don't mean to be indelicate, but if there is no resurrection, those that have gone on before us, those who have died in Christ, the Bible euphemism used twice in this passage is fallen asleep. I don't think Paul did air quotes, but I did. Um, they're, They're gone. You'll never see them again. And this, this list that Easter flowers were given many times in, in memory of a loved one who you believe was a person of faith who knew the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, sorry, but you'll never see them again. They're gone. They're utterly destroyed. And it's all a big pity, verse 19. We're we're all just a bunch of poor saps. All this is purely a waste of time. Later in the chapter, as I said, we're not dealing with all of 1 Corinthians 15, but in verse 32, Paul concedes that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a better use of your time. This is a fruitless exercise. Those that came to 7 o'clock sunrise service, those of you here now, you're better off waxing your car, mowing your lawn, getting out the motorhome, working on your, your putting of your golf game. It's a waste of time. And those who stay home this morning, there are some, you, you have extended family members, you have neighbors that you invited. Hey, it's Easter, I'm, I'm going to church, would you come with me? And there's some folks that you're thinking of right now that stayed home this morning, and they realize this truth, that if there's no resurrection, it's just a bunch of hogwash. And you may as well do something else and make more out of the time. If, 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 if. If, seven times he says it in this passage, if there is no resurrection, these are the implications. These are the logical outcomes. The good news is the gospel, the fact, number four in your outline, that Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's read our last paragraph. You can look on the words as I read aloud for us. But, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, our faith is not mere philosophy. It's not simply a code of ethics. It is, it, it can be understood as propositional truth, a series of truth claims. That can be said about our faith. Uh, our faith is an incarnational faith. Jesus was God incarnate, right? Jesus was God in the flesh. Our faith is an incarnational faith, and it makes us alive to God. And so it's also experiential religion. It should make a difference in your life. It should change you. Whether you're a covenant kid and you've grown up in this or another church your whole life, or whether you came to know the Lord Jesus later on in your life. For me, I was a college student, first week on campus. But our faith is an historic one. It's based on actual events that unfolded in space and time in human history. It's the drama of human redemption that God has made known and revealed as he has claimed for himself a people for his own possession. So the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. Just as we saw there are implications if there is no resurrection, well, these are the implications of this fact. Christ is the first fruits. Verses 20 and 23 use this word. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, for a long, long time in my faith, this kind of troubled me because you remember point two in your outline? It lists all the various people who were raised from the dead before Jesus. So it's very nice that Jesus was added to that number, right? Other people were raised from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. That's really nice. No. He's the first fruits. He's a new kind of man. Poor Lazarus had a temporary resuscitation only to taste death again. You and I will undergo a physical death one day. Mortality rate is holding steady at 100%. But Jesus is never to die again. That's why he is called the first fruits. He's the first kind of a new man. He's a sample of a coming harvest. One source I consulted says that by his case, the future resurrection of Christians is guaranteed because the first fruits forerun and are a pledge and promise of the rest of the harvest. He's the first fruits and there's more to come. He is our representative. I'm not going to go far down this road. But our paragraph that we read here talks about Adam. Adam is our, what theologians call our federal head, our representative head, that you and I inherited sin natures, and thus we sin, because of that fateful choice that Adam made in the garden. 
Through one man came death, but through the second Adam, that is Jesus, the Christ, comes life that is ushered in full and free. He is our representative. Moreover, he's the one who raises us. Not only does he possess the power of an indestructible life, but as a life-giving spirit, he's able to give life to others. Lazarus couldn't do that. Jesus can. And he gives life in two senses. We all anticipate the general resurrection, that is, of believers unto eternal life when we receive our glorified, imperishable, incorruptible bodies. And that's one sense in which he raises us. The other one is by causing us to be made alive unto God. What Jesus called being born again. Remember Nick at night, John chapter 3? Nicodemus, leader of the Jews, comes to him and says, how can I... Uh, have eternal life? What does Jesus say to him? He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He's thinking solely on the physical plane. He's saying, how can, and paraphrasing, how can I, a full-grown man, enter a second time into my mother's womb? What do you mean being born again? And Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jimmy Carter didn't come up with being born again, neither did Chuck Colson. It was Jesus. It's also used by the Apostle Paul in in Titus 3, the washing of regeneration. That means to be born again. The Apostle Peter speaks of it in his letters, being made alive to God. Jesus is the one who raises us in terms of our spiritual regeneration and one day physically at his return. In Christ shall all be made alive, all who trust in him. And he's coming again. This also flows out of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's a representative. He's the one who raises us. And he's coming again. Verse 23. It's springtime. Easter was late this year, but we're not that far with uh, Christmas in our rearview mirrors. Christmas we call Advent. Advent means coming or arrival. Well, b- Christians believe in a second coming, a second arrival, that God, the Messiah, Jesus, will again visit his people. He's coming again, verse 23. Not only that, point E in your outline, under these facts, is that he is reigning now, verse 25. He's reigning now and delivering the kingdom soon. This is what theologians call the now but not yet, or the already but not yet. And I think sometimes, even as well-meaning believers, we are troubled by the fact that we're told this story We're told that Jesus rose from the dead, and we we begin to learn that this was a different sort of resurrection. It was no mere resuscitation, and Jesus' resurrection was unique, making him the first fruits from the dead. And we begin to embrace that in our hearts and minds and in our lives, but we look around in the world, 
whether we look inside our own lives and the struggles that we still have with sin, or we read the newspaper headlines or watch the news and realize that the world is a pretty, well, again, to quote Larry Norman, uh, uh, he said that he was only visiting this planet. It's such a crazy world we, we live in. I wonder who began it. Don't ask me. I'm only visiting this planet. That's what Larry Norman said. We look around and we see that the world is kind of crazy. And so we believe in Jesus, but we have this sort of cognitive dissonance because we think, well, if Jesus is who he says he is, why is the world so messed up? Why do I still struggle so? Well, a great explanation is tucked away at the end of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. The last phrase of that little verse says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But one day, everything will be made right. All wrongs will be made right, and justice will come. He is reigning now, whether we act like it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether others do or not. He reigns now, and he will be delivering the kingdom soon. And last, he's the destroyer of death. Verses 24 and 26 mentions destroying. He's the destroyer of death. He will bring man-made forces and powers to an end, rendering them inoperative. He will subdue all his and our enemies. And as it says in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. And it says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So Easter, that's nice. You know, we can celebrate, we can buy colorful things of Easter bonnets, baskets, whatever. But so what? So what? Christ rose bodily from the dead. It's not just his memory lives on. It's not that he died for a good cause. We believe that in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his life changes everything. It's a fact of history. Whether we believe it or not, I've staked my life on it. How about you? Let's pray. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Thank you, Jesus, that no one took your life from you. You had authority to lay it down and you had authority to take it back up again. And indeed, you did. And so we can have hope. A hope that some in the world dismiss and say it's just pie in the sky thinking to make ourselves feel better because we're afraid of death. But the truth is, our hope is that confident expectation that Jesus truly lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And he truly died a sacrificial death in our stead, 
in our place, demonstrating God's love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, our substitute. And Lord, we believe also in his triumphant bodily resurrection from the dead, that he lives and reigns and rules today. And one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let us be among those who do so now voluntarily in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. We believe in you. Amen.